You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 122 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm okay. Okay, that's good. Okay is pretty much sums it up for me right at, at the moment. Yeah. Um, what am I doing? I'm tweaking. I'm tweaking a manuscript, Val. Oh. So I'm tweaking. Okay. Just like, tweaking which is like is not as intensive as editing because it's actually already been edited quite thoroughly, right. rigorously. Yep. This is just the, you got the eyes, the, you know, the eye color wrong and uh, stuff. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm tweaking. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. Tweaking is uh, good. Well, it's better than, you know, the head hurting aspect of actually reimagining sections of your story which a structural mm. edit can involve so oh, that I'm, I'm happy so to be tweaking yeah yes mm. well good good on you tweaking and what about is good. you what are you doing what am I doing um you may recall that last week I was grumpy I oh lot, yes it, that, but I got fixed because I got a massage and uh I was less grumpy mm. I did exciting things like um uh, I had some people over on the weekend and uh, this is Ooh. a rare occurrence for me because I'm not a good entertainer mm-hmm. and I'm not very domestic. Did you cook? No, I bought it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, I didn't have a coffee table so I I, I bought one off Facebook. <laughs> As you do, right? Because yes. Facebook would be the first place I'd go to buy a coffee table. Well, yes. because this popped up in my Facebook feed that this oh. coffee table was available and I was like, oh, my God, I need a coffee table because I've got these people coming over and this woman is in the same suburb. Oh. Fantastic. Like fate. Fate. Then mm. we, like, I go to get the coffee table and we established that uh, we had both worked at Girlfriend Magazine a million years ago, but we were a month apart. So she left a month before me. Oh, wow. There you go. Small world. That is a small world. So does that mean you've got a new friend around the corner now? I guess so. Oh, it's mm. fun. Yeah. You might have to entertain again. Will you be ready for that? For the pressure of that? <laughs> I don't know. It's really stressful. I'm not good at it. I'm just not good at it. And it wasn't even dinner. What was it? Like drinks with like canapé things. Drinks and canapé things. Yeah, that what I bought. What did you do at that point? So what time was that? 5.30. So come for drinks and canapés. Yeah, because I wouldn't you... cope with dinner. Just, I'd, I'd die. But what, do you then just chuck them out at 7.30 so they can go and eat or what happens? I guess, but they're probably not going to eat because they've eaten enough, you know. Right. Yeah, you don't okay. chuck them out because they're polite. They, they just go. Wow. Yeah. Okay, good. There you go. <laughs> That's very low maintenance in <laughs> You can't do that down here. Like I would have really? to, I, I have to, if I have people around at five o'clock, 
I have mm. to do, you know, canapes and everything and then dinner and oh, then no. probably dessert. And there's usually about 25 children running around my backyard. Oh, no, people know I can't cope with dinner. They just know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an option. Look, if you want to stay, you've got to dial a pizza or bring your own. Is that how it works? Okay. Yeah. It's like vegetarians. They have to bring their own. I just can't deal. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. It's nothing against vegetarians at all. I just can't actually cope with doing. You can't you know, put. You can't get your head around it. You yeah. can't do a bit of halloumi and asparagus. I can't just do. I can't do too many things when okay. it comes to food. Right. It's just like the stress it causes me is unending. I find it fascinating that you can run an entire business, <laughs> do you know keynote speeches for twenty thousand people, but the concept of cheese and crackers is stressful. You don't understand. The, I do. The stress. I'm, <laughs> leading up to this event even. I, really do. I, I remember having a conversation. I have a friend who's a caterer and very, very good. He's a chef. Mm. And he was saying to me one day, we had this great chat, he was saying to me about, oh, I think my first book was coming out. He goes, I just can't believe that you can sit down and write a book. And I said, I just can't believe that you can pull out meals for 400 people at once yeah. and they're all warm. I'm they're so all- impressed by <laughs> <laughs> I'm like everyone's got their thing, you know. Everyone's got their yeah. thing. Yeah. Anyway, cook- cooking's not my thing. Okay, so this is not actually the catering show. Yeah, sorry everyone. <laughs> this is so you want to be a writer. Yeah. So let's get on to that. Shall <laughs> okay, we? but before we do, we want to do a shout out to Indie Bug. I love that name, Indie Bug. Indie Hello. Bug. And Indie Bug has written a review on iTunes, and Indie Bug has said the most enjoyable look at an author's life and the actual reality of what this really is. People Mm. who can't make cheese and crackers. (laughs) Clearly. That's right. Um, Indiebug has written, a week ago I had no idea who either of you were. (laughs) Hi. Hi. uh... (laughs) Our fame is spreading, Val. It's spreading. Okay. And now I wonder how I survived without you. I've (laughs) I've never written a book, but the aim is to one day. But I love to read and am endlessly interested in the lives and experiences of those that write the books that keep me company during the dark hours. You discuss the most mundane subjects like tax. Oh, yes, <laughs> he, I agree with you, Indie Bug. Uh, mundane. Indie, bug, indie Bug says the most mundane subjects humorously oh. <laughs> and present other complicated and mind-boggling issues associated with being a writer in such an interesting manner that I find myself evening dreaming whilst Uh walking the dog of course (laughs) about writing a book about writing a book myself one day this is vaguely terrifying and causes me to hide my podcasts from my patient other half but I have honestly loved every minute of the 10 I've listened to and I've just started downloading from 100 to catch up on the rest thank you for such enjoyable and informative entertainment oh Wow. I, I love the idea that we are somebody's illicit pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. It yes. makes me feel special. And, you know, I, someone out there who appreciates the discussion on tax. <laughs> <laughs> See, now all you're doing is encouraging her, Indie Bug. I think we should go there. <laughs> thank you so much, Indie yes, Bug. You've made you our day. Much. You have. Yes. And if you do have, um, you know, 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it So, because um, it helps us in the rankings. But uh, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Yes, let's, because I love that. Yes. So I like this 
link, which we'll put all of these links that we refer to in the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. But this is from Kristen Lamb's blog, and it's called So You Wrote a First Draft, Dear God, What Now? And I just thought it had some really good tips because um, – you know, when you have written a first draft, it's kind of so exhausting <laughs> that you just want to almost put it away for a while because you you just don't want to deal with it. But when you are ready to deal with it, there are certain things you should do. And one of the first things you should not do is send it off to a publisher. Mm, yes, not, don't do that. Not your first draft. You've no. got it out there, but you now need to polish it. Don't mm. expect your publisher is going to polish it. The publisher is actually going to think, oh, this is as good as this person can get and make their judgment on that. Mm. So some things to consider that uh, Kristen Lamb has put in this blog post is to cut certain things. Now, one of the things she suggests is to think about character redundancy Mm. because there are so many times where you may have included characters just because you love the idea of that character or they're based on someone that you know that you just want to include, but in fact they don't do anything for the story at all or they might be a distraction to the story or the reader might be going, why is this person there, Mm. you know, and and Mm. be expecting something to unfold and then it doesn't unfold and it's frustrating, especially if you have painted that character quite, you know, colourfully. So think about are there some characters who simply do not need to be there. And in the same vein, are there some scenes that actually don't need to be there either because they they might be beautifully written scenes, but they don't actually progress the story. So, yeah, there's and there's a few others in there, aren't there, Al, that, that are... Well, I have some things to say about this because yes. I found this really interesting, this post. Mm. So she talks about um, the fact that they're... You basically, you know, we've talked before how there are two types of writers. There are when I do my when I do my talk uh, at the school about this subject, I talk about the fact that there are discovery writers mm. and there are map making writers. Because mm. of course, I'm talking about map makers. Yes. See how I did that? I so you're either very clever. you're either going to plot your book or you're going to you know start with an idea and write and see what happens. Mm. Um, so in this post. Um, she, Kristen, and this is actually a really good blog, by the way, uh, Kristen Lamb's blog. If you're a writer, it's a really good blog. So have a look at what she's got going on. But she talks about the fact that you're either a trimmer or you're an embellisher. Mm. And what you've just discussed there is, is you know, if you need to be a trimmer, that's what you need to do. Because lots of people will write way, 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 way too many words in their first draft. Mm. I am an embellisher. When right. it comes to editing, because if you um, are if you are an embellisher, you are a person who writes a very sparse first draft yes. that acts a lot like a frame for paper mache. That's how she describes it. Yes. So my friend Alison Rushby and I often discuss the fact that we are just chronic underwriters, mm-hmm. and that, so I think it comes from not. Well, she's a plotter, so I don't know what her issue is, but I'm not. So when when I'm writing a first draft, a lot of it is just me finding out what the story is. Mm. So I'm like, like, and if you've been following my progress on Write a Book with Al, I got slightly sidelined with the edit and I haven't quite got back into my usual pace. But it's, um, you know, I, I'm, I am forward momentum. I am moving forward all the time. And I, it's partly because I'm just desperate to find out what's going to happen mm. and worried that I'm not going to be able to make it happen because there's a little bit of panic involved in my writing style. Um, so when it comes to the edit, I have to go through and put the details in. Yeah. I've got to describe things. I have to actually allow the fact that maybe my world describing has not been as 
shall we say, um, effusive as it might have been. Mm. And so therefore I need to go back and put that sort of stuff in. So you can be that kind of editor. You can be that person. And um, if your plot or your first draft feels more like a framework um, or, you know, talking heads screenplay, like mine sometimes can, Mm. (laughs) then you need to go in and you need to actually, you know, fill it in. You've got to colour in the scenes. You've got to put the paper mache over the framework. So um, it's an interesting post and I think it's worth reading to decide which of those two you are and what what are you going to do next. Would you say you meet more trimmers than embellishers? Uh, Yes. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yes, yes, Mm. much more, Um, mostly because... It's uh, particularly if you are a um, a discovery kind of writer, you can find yourself wandering down byways and yeah. into dead ends, and and a lot of people will sort of leave that sort of information in, and then yeah. as, and then they come back in a very circuitous route. They'll come back to the story, and so they end up, you know, like I I've spoken to people in my Skype chats because I do the uh, Skype coaching mm. sessions. And they've said to me, oh, I've got, you know, my first draft is 100,000 words. And I'm like, are you writing children's fiction? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, well, you need to cut that in half. Mm, yeah. In half. So yeah. I know, how scary is that? Mm. Um, so I said, maybe what you've actually got there is two books. So um, I think it's worth, yeah. So most people will write way too many words and have to go back and actually remove entire unnecessary scenes. So I definitely meet more trimmers than embellishers. So my mm. question to you is, why do you think you're an embellisher? Why do you think you underwrite? What got you into that habit? I think it's just because of, I, I, I honestly think it's probably a word. It's a, I worked, because I am a feature, I was a feature writer first mm. and feature writers work to word counts, mm. right? So you're never going to write 1,200 words when you're being paid for 1,000. Mm. So in my head, particularly like, so let's say I'm working on a Mapmaker Chronicles book, mm. they are 55,000 words long. Mm. So I write 55,000 words. (laughs) I really do. Um, In fact, mostly I pull them in sort of the first draft will come in at about 52 Mm -hmm. or maybe 51, 52 because I want to get make sure that I get the story into that word count and then I go back. And it's just a, it's a matter of, and partly it's because I'm learning the story as I go. I'm learning sometimes the characters, not so much with the mapmaker books, but I'm mm. actually, you know, my characters, particularly in a first draft of a first book in the series, I'm 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 meeting them as I go, and I'm learning things about them all the time. Mm. So then, when I do the edit, I go back, knowing all the things that I know about them, mm. and I seed a lot of that stuff into the into the start of the book as well. Usually, my I start the book in the wrong place, so I have to fix that. Right. You know, there's you know, I've got a lot of issues. I I feel like I'm <laughs> in a counselling session. <laughs> I've got a lot of issues, but you know, it's working out for me so far. Well, I'm getting yeah. there. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, I think you're right. You, because of your background as a feature writer, you probably write to the word count. And, I do. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, uh, but most people are definitely the opposite. Yes, most definitely. So let's move on to our next link. And I just thought it was an interesting article. Uh, This was just on uh, um, abc.net.au by a reporter, Emily Stewart, and it's called Australian Indie Magazines Thriving as Big Publications Struggle. Now, of course, we have heard of the closure of certain big magazines like Clio, which we're both on, and um, a bunch of other magazines. But uh, there's been certainly, a um, rise in the popularity of indie magazines like Frankie and Hello May. Um, There's a new one called Lunch Lady 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and it's interesting to see how that the fact that um, these major magazines with a lot of backing behind them aren't mm-hmm. able to make it you know make a viable model. Um, and yet we have a whole bunch of indie magazines that are just rising and rising and rising in circulation. So mm. while there are people who are saying that the print industry is dead, it's not really. It's just um, evolving. Yeah, it's changing. I mean, the market's fragmenting. I think if anything, like the internet, because of the the, the rise of the internet, you know, you, you can't really anymore um, just send a magazine out that's going to that's going to appeal to eighteen to. 35-year-olds because they can find exactly what they want on the internet. They don't need to read a magazine for that. However, if you're targeting a niche and you know you've got a a fair idea, like you can go really hard into that smaller demographic and then you've got something that's actually worth picking up. Um, I find the lunch lady thing really interesting because it's come out of a a cooperative thing with an existing blog. Yeah, a blog. And it's Mm. going to be a... I don't know if it's out yet, but it's going to be a um, a quarterly magazine priced at nearly $18, which I think is really, really interesting because mm. um, that's quite a high price point. So obviously, like it's going to be uh, obviously a beautiful visual experience. It's yes. also going to have a lot of uh, recipes in it. So it's almost like a new cookbook every quarter because mm. um, I know that the Women's Weekly Food magazines, like the they've brought out, they, they've started that, uh, just sending their, their own specific recipe um, books, basically their cookbook range is put out as a magazine every month and they're fantastic and I buy them, not all the time, mm. but I get them when I see them if there's a, because a, um, I know the Women's Weekly Recipes work really well Yes, and if they put out a themed issue that appeals to me, then I'm happy to stump up nine bucks for it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I think they also these indie magazines look different to the usual glossy magazines. Mm, so they do. It's it's like a fresh look. Mm. You know, talking about niching, you he was saying that there's it's, it's fragmented and it goes into niches. I was at the bookshop the other day and they had a magazine there they were selling called Palette, uh, mm. as in P A L A T E. Uh, no, the no, no, the thing that you you transport goods on. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like you, yeah. your forklift goes and picks yeah, yeah, up a pallet. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, mean, I was flicking through it thinking, what the hell is this? Because there were articles on celebrities, on um, wine, on lifestyle, on travel, but the underlying theme was pallets of beer. And oh. so there was this thread that had to do with beer, but mm-hmm. um, and that was its niche. However, it was covering a whole big range of topics. Weird. Well, I think the other interesting thing with these publications, particularly with things like Frankie and Smith Journal and mm. that kind of stuff, there's a certain there's a certain hipster snobbery to them in mm. the sense that if you you identify as a Frankie reader, yes. then you are saying that you are not a Cosmo girl like yes. everyone else in the yep. whole universe. Um, and I think it's I think it's about that too. I think, yes. you know, people are reading them um, for that reason. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, indie magazines are certainly another option for writers who don't necessarily want to write for the traditional and the mainstream but want to, you know, get paid by different types of um, publications. So I came across an interesting link which I think should make us both happy. 
Okay. And, of course, to our readers, as, I mean, oh. not readers, listeners as well. Uh, it's called, it's from a, a website called Good, as in G-O-O-D, good.is, and it's called Keep Reading, Books, Magazines and Newspapers Could Help You Live Longer. And basically, according to a new study, published in the journal Social Science and Medicine. It, the website says avid readers tend to live longer than those who pass on the written word altogether. Oh. We're going to live longer. Oh, goodness gracious me. Yes. and will uh, be 107 before we know it. Exactly. I'm going to live apparently to 102. Are you? Yes, apparently. Why do you know that? Oh, because, you know, in Eat, Pray, Love, you know, oh, by Elizabeth yeah. Gilbert, Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the one of the main premises of the book is she goes to and it opens with her visiting Kututlia, mm-hmm. the um, wise man in Bali who she visits and then she comes back to visit. That's how the book kind of opens. Um, I went to visit visit Kututlia, and I paid him fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you had you had the whole experience. Eat, pray, love made me do it. Look at you go. <laughs> 50 US dollars. And he told you you were going to live to 102. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I hope I'm around to, to, to see if that's correct. Maybe it's because I read lots of magazines and books. Well, just on that, let's just go back to that because that segues me into an interesting um, into an interesting link and I'm actually going to blindside you with this because you didn't even know I was going to discuss this. But um, Chuck Wendig at yes. TerribleMinds.com, who I, I do love. He comes with a language warning, but the man is so blunt and honest, I can't help but love him. Mm. Um, he wrote this great post earlier this week, and it was one that I was contemplating writing myself, but then I, I decided against it. So I, I always love it when someone else does it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called 25 Reasons Why I Stopped Reading Your Book. And it's Ooh. it's an interesting thing, but he talks, and the reason I loved it is that one thing that I know have noticed over the last couple of years and that he has also noticed is that when you um, write a lot and you're writing books and things like that, it changes your reading experience so much that it's um, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and he talks about the fact that, you know, he doesn't read novels like he used to and neither do I. And I have to say that something has to be really, really, really good yeah. to keep me going, you know, past the first 100 pages now and it's partly you know he gives 25 reasons why and it's worth having a read of them and um he talks about the importance of stakes he talks about the importance of context he talks about all of those things but part of the problem is I think as the writer of novels you have a much you know better idea of how they work and Mm. so um you can sort of see you're you're looking under the skirts as a writer Mm. who's reading a novel and so it has to be (laughs) It has to be really, really good to keep you going. And I'm kind of devastated by this, I have to tell you, because I love reading so much. Mm. And to have your job impact so much on something that you're so passionate about Mm. is kind of a terrible thing. It has made me so much more discerning, which is probably not a bad thing. Mm. But I just, um, I just, I wonder if other writers out there in our community have had the same problem. If they read differently now that they write novels to how they used to read when they were just reading them. Oh, for sure. And let us know on social mm, media. Do what let us know because I do worry it's just me. I no, do. no, it's not just you. Because Now one that thing... I have Chuck on my side, I feel better. But yeah. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. Because one thing that, I mean, I know that if a novel is really, really good or a book, it doesn't have to be a novel. It can be a nonfiction book with, you know, like mm. a narrative nonfiction. Um, if, if it's really, really good, 
I just, I do get lost. I allow myself to get lost and, and it's great. But I do, but if I find myself a editing it as I go, and I don't mean little commas and things. I mean, oh my God, should have put that sentence first or, or, oh my God, you should have explained this first. So if I find myself doing that, then it's very distracting for me. Mm. Um, or if I find myself going, who the freaking hell edited this and going to <laughs> <laughs> firing off an email, yes. no, going to look for <laughs> the editors, then, uh, you know, I, there's obviously some room for improvement, but I, I do love it when I come across those books where that doesn't even occur to me because yeah. I, I, and I've become lost in it. Mm. Um, so I don't think that you're the only, you and Chuck are the only ones. No. Um, I think it, it definitely happens. It's the same. I'm sure you have the same experience as me when you read magazine articles because we're both from magazines mm-hmm. and we can't help but read a magazine article and go, oh, you probably would have put that there or, gee, mm. that was so strong until it got to the end and really mm. it should have ended different. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Anywho, that's today's grumpiness. Yes, let's move on. Today's. So um, I came across this link, which I'm not even going to put it in the show notes because it's not relevant. It's just um, something that <laughs> okay. occurred to me. But I came across this link of the um, – it's American hmm. um, – of the National Resume Writers Association. Oh, and, like, there's an association for resume writers. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even... I had no such... I had no idea that was a thing. I had no idea. But it occurred to me that particularly for the freelance writers out there, the content writers, the copywriters, this is actually a great revenue opportunity because mm. in the past, rev- uh resumes used to be this very structured thing that were written in a certain way that were presented and formatted in a certain way. These days, there's so much more flexibility in the way that you write your resume. In fact, if you are more creative with it, you are more likely to stand out. And instead of just kind of listing your position and your responsibilities, these days I'm seeing so many more resumes that tell a story. And uh, a friend of mine asked me just last week to help her with her resume and she had that traditional resume. And instead I said, no, you got to tell the story of what you did there and, and what you achieved and the kinds of things that the, the recipient of that resume, the reader of that resume will want to read. It's exactly writing to your audience. So there really is an art to writing a powerful, compelling resume these days. Mm, and definitely. It's, and it's something I encourage, you know, the copywriters out there, the content writers who want to, you know, get more money to um, to do because the research is already there. You're just talking to the person whose resume you're writing, right? I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's not like you have to go research a whole other heap of places and you just need to retell their story in a compelling way. So mm-hmm. just a thought that occurred to me that I wanted to share with people. Thanks for that, Valerie. It's you're a welcome. very caring thought. <laughs> and you don't necessarily have to join a National Association of Resume Writers. Just no, you don't. Start offering it. Mm. All right. So there you go. That was just my little thing for the week. <laughs> so let's move on to our giveaway for this week. Okay. 
this is the final week that people can <gasps> enter. Final week. Da, da, da. Dun, dun, dun. In conjunction with Crime and Thriller Month. And, of course, Crime and Thriller Month, for those p- people who are interested in the world of crime and thriller writing, make sure you check out our pop-up podcast series, which is called Murder and Mayhem. Just search for Murder and Mayhem in iTunes. And it's doing really well in the charts. So thank you to everyone who has downloaded and listened. Mm. And it's a pop-up podcast, which you can, you don't have to listen to it during August. You can listen to it anytime. And it's 31 days, consecutive days, 31 of the world's best crime and thriller authors that we chat to in that pop-up podcast. And of course, there's also the accompanying ebook, which is free to download at murdercourse.com. But if you want to win 16 mm. books in our crime and thriller competition, you can do that. There are two books of eight books each. Sorry, two packs. Two packs. Of, yes, of eight two books packs. each of crime and thriller authors. And entries are open until the 29th of August. And you can go to writerscenter.com.au slash win. It's actually like a little short story, short, short story competition. Should be fun to enter. And, um, yeah, writercenter.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine. So, Al, you ready for the word of the week? Yes, I am so ready. I am, look at me, being enthusiastic and excited. Specious. Specious, okay. It's like spacious, you know, like you want your house to be spacious. It's like spacious except instead of an A, there's an E, specious. Okay, yeah. So, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, specious is something that is apparently good or right but without real merit. So mm-hmm. you might have a specious argument because actually you've got no leg to stand on. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or the other person doesn't. <laughs> yes. Or you might say the artistic work had a specious air of quality but it was actually rubbish. Oh, mm. specious. Okay. Specious. I'm looking forward to seeing how our little team of Word of the Week bloggers uses yes. that one. Yeah, it's a cracker, isn't it? Mm. So if you are using the Word of the Week in your blog post this week, make sure you ping us because we'd love to see how you use it. Mm. We would. Shall we move on to our writer in residence? Let's do that. Who have you got for us, Valerie? So excited, Al. <laughs> okay. Because... <laughs> <laughs> This it's sit back. Yes, yeah, sit back. I'm particularly excited because uh, this writer is one of our graduates. Oh, that is exciting. Yes. So she's a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. She's done, you know, the courses and she. Um, this is now her second book and it's published by Random House. And uh, her first book is called Risk and her second book, which is out now, is called Black and her name is Fleur Ferris and um, we have a chat to her here. So thanks for joining us today, Fleur. 
Thank you for having me. Now, very exciting because your second novel, which is called Black, is being released and your first novel is called Risk. But just uh, so there are some readers who may be new to you, can you tell us what the book is about? Black or Risk? Are we talking black? We're talking black. Black, yes. Black is about a girl who lives in a small country town and some of the people in the town thinks that she is cursed. So um, as a result of this, she's sort of a little bit isolated um, from some of her friends and um, some of the families and um, it sort of moves into bullying So for her. So it hasn't um, – it doesn't – she desperately wants to leave the town that she's living in. So, and her name is Ebony. That's why the book is called Black. Mm-hmm. And so it's basically about Ebony and um, how she deals with this curse and how that, that develops into something more. So there's a bit of a mystery as to why there is this curse going on, right? Yes. She's lost a few of her friends mm-hmm. um, over many years and they are unrelated incidents. So she, um, so some people believe that she's, Bad luck. It's bad luck to be friends with her. Yeah. Now, what is the – this is for young adults? Yes, it is, yep. So your first book was also for young adults. Just give us a quick recap on what that book was about, Risk. Risk was about two 15-year-old girls who go online and they meet a guy and one of them then wants to meet him in real life. So she goes to meet and she doesn't come back when she says she was going to and that's where that book starts. Yeah, so there's a there's also a bit of a mystery going on there, and it's it's the the story slowly unfolds, um, well, may not slowly unfold. <laughs> the story unfolds to then so that the reader discovers what in the world happened to the to girl. Sierra. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Great. So now I understand that you have a background um, as a police officer and a paramedic. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, I was a police officer in Melbourne uh-huh. um, for a number of years and worked in places like St Kilda and Brunswick out of Broadmeadows. Um, I worked in sex offences for a period of time, um, did some other temporary duties such as uh, special operations and um, a little tiny bit of undercover work as well. And um, after that, I travelled for some time and then um, did paramedics over in Adelaide. So moved to South Australia. Wow. So at, <laughs> at what point did you think, oh, I might become a writer now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually writing throughout that whole time. And while I was over in Adelaide studying applied science to be a paramedic at Flinders University, I was also out at um, UniSA studying writing because I did know then that I wanted to be a writer. And I had written three novels by then. So I was tapping away at this for a long time before I even decided, yes, now I'm going to really concentrate on being a writer. So you were doing it out of interest at the time? Yes. And I knew that down the track it is something I wanted to do and I thought that I would, you know, put all of my energy into it at some stage. Mm. But when I was younger it just wasn't the right time for me to do that. And I really enjoyed the jobs that I was doing and the travelling that um, came with it mm. and just the experiences that I um, I had from those jobs were fantastic and so I really enjoyed that and it wasn't until I moved once I qualified in Adelaide I'd been there for five or six years I then moved over back to Victoria to Mansfield 
mm. and um, worked in the Alpine area. And that's where I resigned from. But that was after I had children. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really thought, okay, now is the time for me mm-hmm. to concentrate on becoming a writer. And and I wrote differently after that. I wrote novels thinking someone's going to read this and I'm going to submit this for um, public scrutiny, basically. So um, it was a different way of writing and a different approach after what, that. Wow. So the previous one, the previous novels that you wrote were kind of like a practice run were they and these and once you finally make the decision you thought you're going to write real stuff yeah well there was never pressure on those first ones because I I just didn't have to let people read them I Mm. I left them in my computer and (laughs) still to this to this day no one's ever read those books wow so it wasn't until I'd written novel number five that I thought this is the novel I'm going to send um, and try and get an agent and so how long ago was this decision and what did you physically do to start writing in earnest? Okay, my daughter is nearly 10. So it must have been like the decision when I thought, okay, I'm writing this book to get it published um, may have been nine years ago right. now. So um, maybe eight, maybe eight years I think I wrote another book before that, but I didn't ever send that book, that one out. So it might have been eight, seven or eight years ago. And at that point, did you? What did you do to start writing in earnest? I basically wrote every chapter, mm. thinking it was for a competition, oh. and that every chapter would have to be read by somebody. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that's it, a good it, approach. It really, it, yeah, it really changed. Because that way every word matters. And yes. The, every paragraph, the start paragraph is essential. Then the next one, of course, because at any stage someone will stop reading if they don't like it. Yeah. And so if it doesn't lead into the next and the next and the next, yeah. then so that's how I approached it, one paragraph at a time. So and, um, how did the idea for Black your second novel, come about? It had been ticking over in my head while I was writing Risk. In fact, it had been ticking over in my head for a number of years that um, that these it's an issue that I wanted to explore. Mm. And um, I just find that, like, it was sort of a creepy, it's got a creepy element to it. Mm. And there were some incidents that occurred that just sort of cemented in my head that, yes, it is an issue I want to explore. And that um, the the fanaticism in the book, the the creepy curse and what that the power that ha- that has on those who believe in that curse mm. or even superstitions, mm. it can affect how people behave and can affect what people will try and do and will try and achieve. Mm. And um, it can be very powerful. So I just wanted... Not the not my protagonist to have that belief, but those around her, and to explore what that meant for this girl living in this little country town, where really, if you don't fit into your country town, you're you're very isolated. Mm. So, I grew up in a country town, and um, I certainly didn't have the experiences that my protagonist had. But <laughs> uh, thank goodness. Um, but I understand that whole mentality and and what it's what it is like living in small, you know, in a small town like that. Mm. What, um, why did you choose to write for young adults? Because both Risk and Black are for young adults. 
Yeah, it wasn't a conscious choice. The stories that came to me, the the people in the stories were that age. Mm. So when I was in character, I guess though I wasn't ever thinking what would a 15-year-old girl do or what would an 18-year-old girl do for black. Mm. Um, it was this, she's a, you know, a student and this is happening. What would she do now and how would she feel now and how would that affect her and her family and friends, you know, mm. around her? So it was never a conscious choice um, that I will write young adult. It's just those the two stories that got published mm. um, were now, of course, I understand all of that. Like you learn with every book mm. and not just about the writing but about the publishing and how you're branded mm. by publishers and everything. So now I do make that conscious choice yeah. that my protagonist will be of an age that will fit beside my other books. Yeah. Um, but when I started, that's just the book that got published. Sure. So so how much do you draw or have you drawn on your experiences as a police officer and a paramedic in, in your books? In risk, there was a lot of that because mm-hmm. I did work in sex offences for a period of time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so I just had the confidence to do those scenes mm-hmm. and – I still have friends in the police force, so I was able to ring them and say, um, does this still occur? Does that still occur? What departments are now in because they change names? Mm. Um, so I was able to easily access that information and have it accurate right up to the time that it was published. Um, and I'd experienced so many things in that time by just experiencing people and people in a crisis. Mm and how that affects them and how they behave. And um, even with the offenders, why people do what they do. And there are always reasons, even if we don't understand them. Once you start investigating, it's very interesting because you start to think, okay, now I see why he did that or, or she. Yeah. Um, even if it's not something that I would agree with or that I would do myself, um, it doesn't mean you can't understand it. And so that that is a huge thing in my novels that I would always hope to achieve that, mm. that they would that sort of understanding of why people are behaving the way they are. Do you start off, let's say, with black? Do you start off with this uh, premise of this idea, and then and then explore it, or do you have to know what happens in the end before you start writing? How do you approach that oh. creatively? In black, the end scene was in my mind and I had played that scene in my head like a movie um, over and over. Mm. And and every scene, all of the scenes the, where the, the big conflicts were, were very strong in my head. Mm. And so that whole novel, I didn't explore that. Even though I didn't sit down and write a plot, it was in my head very strong. Yes. Um, and I knew what I was writing before I started. Wow. And... And um, Risk was the same. It, it was a very strong plot in my head and I'd done a lot of research, not necessarily to write a book at first. Mm. Um, just a few things happened in our area that scared me, so I wanted to look into it. Um, and so that that was the same sort of thing, that it was very strong and just I could just sit down and write mm. the story as it played in my head. Wow. And so when you sat down and started writing this story, did you um, did you have some idea of like a, a word count goal you wanted to achieve each week or day or how did you get it out? 
Um, well, I think black took me about four months. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have word counts per day, but I had time on the computer per day. And my daughter, my youngest, was at preschool at the time, so I would drop her off. Mm. The library opened at 10. Mm-hmm. So I had four hours of uninterrupted child-free time right. in the library. Mm. And that's the time that I just sat down with no social media and just mm. wrote. And I was able to achieve a fair bit um, in that four hours, um, but with distract- distractions. And we run a farm as well. So there were there was a few things that stopped me writing that. And then I had to go back and start again. And I like to keep momentum um, when I start writing. Sure. Just just to start the book and finish the book without actually getting interrupted. Yeah. As, so, so, yeah, tell us about your typical day then. Do you have to juggle running the farm as well? Um, yes, I do. In summer, um, I manage the rice. We, we grow rice on our farm. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of water coming onto the property. So um, from October right through till Feb- late February, March, mm-hmm. um, my job would be once the kids go to, to the bus or before they go to the bus, check that we've got no major um, damage overnight or anything like that mm. and um, make sure that the water levels are where they're meant to be and rice, you know, it's just checking basically everything. And and then I come back and start. So, And then the kids come home at 4 o'clock. So I check rice before and after, yes, uh, like two times a day. So. Yeah. It sounds um, – sorry, you go on. I was just going to say writing fits in with it. It's it's quite a, a good job um, for me as a writer and a mum mm. because everything sort of fits and works. Mm. It sounds like you live in a small town. I, I live um, – I'm on a rice farm, so I'm actually way out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> feels like in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, but we, there is a community here and there's a school nearby and um, – this, the farms are relatively small, so neighbours, but there's no town as such where I live. My so closest it's, town is it's smaller 70... than a small town. Yes, there's no shops here. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a, there's a silo and a bulk fuel depot and a school. Right. So it's um, smaller than a small town. Does it, it, you in your book you've explored, you know, a girl living in a small town, and as you say, um, you know, everyone. It's it's hard because everyone you're growing up in a small town. If you everything, everyone thinks you're cursed, then everyone knows about it. Yeah. Does everyone know what you do now? Well, I guess in a sense. Um, Do they ever think you're contact. writing about them? Oh, I don't think so, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, basically because uh, the topics I've written about have not been anything to do with being out here. Yeah, right. Um, where we are. I The towns that, that were in mind when I was writing Black were more like Mansfield, where I came from, mm. and uh, Mount Beauty. I spent a lot of time up at Falls Creek through the winter. Right. Um, so those towns where there's water and fog, and um, because the part of the part of that book is that she's she works at a water plant. Mm. So um, it was more more of those towns that rather than on a farm environment that she was living in. Mm-hmm. And what has been the hardest aspect of writing novels? I think once I wrote the novels and I got an agent, the waiting, 
<laughs> to find <laughs> yeah. out if it was going to progress. Yeah. Um, and I seemed to wait for I seemed back then to wait for a long time. And I just feel for anybody now who is in that same boat because it feels like it will never come. Yeah. And you just have to keep going and, and keep hoping that, that one of your books will make it over the line. And that's that's the really hard point and that's where people will drop out mm-hmm. and think, no, I, it's wasting my time, I can't do this anymore And because um, you put so much into writing a book mm. and um, then to sit and wait. And it could be six months or a year. Like risk took 18 months. Mm. 18 to months? To... Yeah, well, I wrote another book before that which was rejected um, jolted and jolted was the book that got my agent got me an agent mm-hmm. so risk was written after that so jolted went out and of course you know we did all that waiting and got rejected and then risk went out and finally got published so and um, so how tell us about the process of getting that agent how did you do it okay first of all I I got used to being critiqued and, and being read by people by using an online website. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also doing a course with you guys, um, which basically when you write something and you, you know that someone's going to be reading it, mm. your peers as well as your instructor, yep. it gives you confidence and lets you know where you sit. Yeah. So that gave me the confidence and the courage to actually approach an agent. And I, I think I saw it on Twitter um, advertised that my agent that I did end up getting, mm. Tara Wynn from Curtis Brown, was at the Right Around the Murray Festival. Mm. So, and they, she had five sessions and there were publishers there too, um, also having sessions for pitch sessions with um, aspiring writers. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to the festival for a session, for a 30-minute session with Tara, a oh, one-on-one, yeah. mm-hmm. to pitch my book and myself and so that's where it started I I sent I went I drove over there and did the the 30 uh, 30 minute thing and um she asked to see the full manuscript at the end of that and um after that six weeks later or so she offered to represent me great so it was yeah it was fantastic I'm actually going back to that festival this year as an author oh good yeah and so you uh, you did the course Writing Books for Children and Young Adults. Yes. Why, why did you decide to do it and what did you get out of it? I wanted to do it because when I was writing Jolted, I knew I was writing a young adult book then um, and purposely did that. So that's when I started to really write and to do that research that I was talking about earlier. Mm. And I didn't know where I was at. And so I really needed advice and um, someone in the industry to read my work and to give me feedback on my work and also the peers. And I really got a lot from that because um, the feedback was great. Actually, while I was doing that course, I think it was a five-week course or a six-week course, while I was doing that course, that's when um, I was offered representation Fantastic. So, yeah, it was that was sort of all amongst it um, and doing that course sort of put me in the right place as well to, to submit my work. Gave you the confidence to submit yeah. your work. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I also got feedback of what I was doing wrong. Do you know what I mean? So, mm. um, and it was just, it was excellent. So I would recommend people do courses like that so um, they can see where they sit amongst 
a group of people who are all trying to achieve publication. So, mm. What's the most rewarding thing about writing novels? If the hardest thing is the waiting, what's the thing that brings you the most joy? The actual writing of the first draft. Right. It's just what I love. Yeah, I get so into the book, so into the writing, the story and the characters and um, I know the main plot but the subplots all happen on the page mm. while I'm writing. So that's really exciting to see where it develops. Mm. Um, and I love the fact that it can fit in with my life. Yeah. So it's what, I, it's, it's what I'm passionate about but family, of course, I'm passionate about too. So it really works um, mm. for me. So so with um, when you're writing uh, a book like this where basically there's a mystery unfolding and the reader needs to be taken along that journey, it's so important for the pacing to be right and, so, and also for the clues or the non-clues to be dropped into the right place Mm. is that something that you felt you did instinctively or after your first draft did you have to go back and go oh my god that's all wrong there and I needed to actually bring that in earlier or or, that's too fast or that's too slow how did that does that work for you mostly the pacing comes instinctively Mm. and um, I've read a lot of books and done some courses about pacing and about writing thrillers and um so I'm aware of those things. So what I said earlier about writing every chapter as if it's going to be in a competition, mm. when I finish a chapter, I look at that and go, okay, have I done, have I achieved what I need to achieve for the reader? Mm. Have I given them everything? Have I let them slow down where they need to? And have I made them read faster? So there's, there's all these little things that I do and, and make sure that there's questions at the end of every chapter. Um Mm. So and the pacing, of course, when you want them to read faster, I'm typing faster and I'm thinking <laughs> faster, and my sentences become choppier and shorter. Yes. And I think because I live and breathe that moment, that yeah. that happens naturally on the page too. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, it all gets pulled apart when it gets sent into my editor. <laughs> um, and so, where I've missed the mark, that's when they come in and say, "Okay, here, here, and here, we need to edit." So. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you're living the moment on the page and you, you know, and your typing gets faster, you probably get, draw shorter breaths. (laughs) And you're writing a thriller and there's scary bits, obviously. How is that for you living in a remote farm? Oh, when I was writing Black, I really creeped myself out. Yeah. A certain character and I could not write at night. Oh, wow. I couldn't read my story back at night because I hated that character being in my headspace oh um, at night time. So I that so working at the library was also because of that. Oh wow! And it's so beautiful, lovely, you know, space um, in daylight hours. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was fantastic to have somewhere to be to write <laughs> those scenes. Jeez. So um, what's next for you? Are you writing something else already? Yes, I am. I've got my next book. I won't reveal the title just because I'm not sure if it's going to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is another young adult thriller. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's got the difference with this one is it is from two points of view. Oh. So, yeah, we've got a, 
it jumps back in time five years ago to a 14-year-old boy mm. and it is a current time to a 17 or 18-year-old girl. Oh, wow. So, and they, yeah, it, the story comes together. So. It sounds complex. How do these things <laughs> form in your brain? How do these <laughs> ideas, you know, even get planted? Oh, I have a lot of ideas <laughs> every day for different novels and some stick and some don't. Mm. So I've got two very strong novels. This one has been in my head since before I started writing Black. Wow. Um, I do a program with the the local primary school and it was one of the stories that one of the children was reading to me and um, it was their reader. So you listen to every child in the school read. Mm. And the the child was so into this story and I was too. I didn't want that child to finish reading. Mm -hmm. And it sort of sparked off this idea in my head for a young adult book. This was a, a middle, you know, a middle grade book that mm. Um, yeah, it sparked off an idea for me. So, um, and that just grew and grew and grew until I thought, yes, I have to write this book. So, so when an idea sparks like that, uh, it sounds like you do keep it in your head. Do you write any of it down, even if it's just formulating characters or some of their backstory or anything, or do you let it brew just in your head until you're ready to write it? Yeah, it all just brews in my head. Really? I never write it down. Yeah. Your head must be an unusual place to be. A busy place. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are brewing it, is that like while you are checking the rice or while you are? Yeah, you doing know. lunch boxes and <laughs> in between anything else. Um, wow. Like at the moment I'm writing this one, but when I'm not writing this one, I've got the next one going as well. And that's very strong, the next one, and I'm very excited about it. So I have to keep pushing that one away. Yeah, because right. it's interfering with my characters in this one. So, so. You, the, you, the next one's already brewing in your head. Don't you feel I'm going to forget if I don't write it down? No, I figure if I'm going to forget, they're not worth it. Right. So, and this is so strong. I can see the scenes. It's like I've seen a movie. Wow. And so – you then play that scene over and then the next scene will come and the end scene might be there um, and the the middle scenes won't be. But then by the time I've finished the one I'm writing, mm. um, they would have filled in and it'll be away I go. So hmm. When you're um, writing scary things uh, or things that are a little bit dark, uh, especially for this age group, ha have you had to censor yourself or kind of go, no, I really, that's too much. I've really got to pull that out. Yes. There was a scene in Risk that I couldn't write. I just wrote X scene. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't write it because I had family around and it was a very dark scene and a very emotional scene. Mm -hmm. And I needed space. It was like I was, like I was going to, I knew I was have to be like I was grieving. And um, so I, basically finished the whole book mm. and then I went to an, my house in Mansfield and I sat down by myself mm. and I wrote that scene over two days Wow! where I just poured it out and um, then I got back in the car and drove home. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. And so what did your family think of your decision to quit paramedics and go, become a novelist? Well, the decision to quit paramedics 
um, wasn't so that I would just concentrate on novel writing. Mm. When I had children, it became too difficult to juggle babies and shift work. Yeah. So it would come to six o'clock when I was meant to knock off and quarter to six, you would get a job that you just cannot refuse. And it might take you four or five hours for that job. Wow. So it was very difficult to juggle childcare. Mm. And my husband is also a paramedic. So two shift workers, family, just, Mm. um, yeah, it was too hard. And so that's how we ended up out having a rice farm because, um, when we went from two incomes to one, we thought, what else can we do here? Right. So um, I was from a farming background. So that's how we ended up moving back um, out to a rice farm and and seeing how that went. So, What drew you to police work in the first place? I think the variety. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left Year 12. I started a teaching degree first. Mm. And after a number of months, thought, no, this this isn't right for me. And then police was sort of in my mind that whole time, thinking, you know, that I would like to do that. And so I thought, I may as well apply and see what happens. Mm. And once I got into it um, and was accepted, it still took a year for me to actually get in because it was a slow time um, for the police department then when they were recruiting. And so... Um, I just worked odd jobs uh, for that year. Um, But, yeah, definitely the variety. And I really loved it when I got into for that reason. You didn't know from one day to the next what you might be doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work was so rewarding. It was amazing. And I saw things that I had never dreamt of even existing. Um, So I really treasure those those years of, of that, I guess, personal development for me, understanding the world more. I was only 19 when I went in. Do you think you will continue to write for young adults or do you think you will uh, try other age groups? I would love to try other age groups. Um, I would love to do some books for middle grade Mm -hmm. and I have an adult book in my head but I haven't sort of thought about that Mm because that would mean um, being published in a different department um, yes. Even if I was with that my same publisher, yeah. So, um, but I have started writing the middle grade book, right? And I think with children the age that I have, I've got three, um, six, eight, and ten. Six, eight, and nine, nearly ten. And um, it's just a good age for me to write those books because it's what I'm doing, what I'm living, mm. and um, it's I see what they love. Like we've, our house is full of books for them, mm. so um, it's. It's like I've got research going on without even trying. Yeah, sure. <laughs> wow, that's so exciting that you are now going back to that writers festival as an as an author, as opposed to you know going exciting. there as an yeah. attendee. That must be an amazing feeling. It is because I feel that that festival is where I started. Yeah, and it's not where I started writing, but it's where it was a real turning point for me. Yep. because it's where I met my agent and that's like I would never have been able to self-publish. I don't have the skills. Mm. Um, I would have had to have outsourced everything. I guess you can learn those skills, mm. um, but I really admire those who can do that. But I'm not one who I don't know if I would have ever gone through with it and mm. I don't know if I would ever have had the confidence to do that. So, um, yeah, really – I really admire and respect the ones that are doing that because it's such a big deal. 
And after going through publishing with a traditional publisher and you see the the team behind the book and what it takes to get that book out, it mm. made me realise even more that I lack those skills. <laughs> so... What's the Grand Master plan to like write a book a year or something like that? Definitely young adult books. I'd love to write a young adult book and a middle grade book a year. Mm. And the middle grade would be a smaller, less words. So mm. I think my, my first drafts are around 50 or 60,000. Yep. Um, and my first, my, my books tend to grow um, in the editing phase rather than <laughs> shrink. So um so yeah, so I'd love to do a middle, uh, one adult. Sorry, one young adult and one middle grade. Mm. So. What, what's your advice for aspiring writers who, you know, were like where you were when you went to the writers' festival that time when you hadn't had any representation or a book deal or anything, and they are hoping to be in a position like you are now. I guess not quitting is no, is the first thing. Um, and once you've finished a, a book and you've submitted it to then just write the next book. So get yourself a portfolio of work mm. and do courses, speak to people and follow people's career who are doing, who are already achieving what you hope to achieve. Mm. Um, that was something, that was a huge learning curve for me to follow those who were already um, getting published. So Australian authors writing for the category I was aiming for. Right. Um, courses. You can, you're just continually improving your skills. Like you can do so many workshops at um, writers' festivals or courses like at the Australian Writers' Centre or um, universities or whatever's going. Mm. And you always take something away from it and it improves your work. Yeah. So... And you did yeah. the course while living on the farm, right? You did the online course? Yeah, I could never have done it without it being online, mm. not over five weeks. I could probably fit a weekend in and travel. Mm -hmm. um, but just how we're set up uh, with farm and kids, it makes it really difficult. Sure. So but the online course for me was perfect and I was able to do it in my time whenever I wanted whenever I could so it wasn't even, it wasn't structured that I had to be there at three o'clock on a certain day or anything yeah. and um and you could access all that information at any time so I could read what the others have said and join conversations without having to be in real time with them mm. so and I'm still friends with the the women that I did that course with Wow. And yeah, it's fantastic. So they were a huge support to me over those that time when it was taking so long and I was getting rejected <laughs> for novel number five. Right. Um it was yeah, terrific. The That's instructors exciting. were great too, yeah. So. Well all right, well, uh Black is out, everyone, so make sure you go buy it for yourself or a young person in your life and go back to the back catalogue and uh, take a look at Fleur's first novel, Risk, as well. So thank you so much for your time today, Fleur. Thank you. Thanks, Valerie. It was great to talk to you. All right, there you go, our Fleur Ferris. Okay, so two things that I find really interesting about that. One is that she farms rice, which I, know how I wouldn't even know where to begin Would with rice farming. No. Um, 
which is, you know, I guess how many of us feel when we approach writing a novel as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also how cute that she was at the Writers' Festival as an attendee and, and now she's going back as an uh, honoured guest. I know. so. I know. I love that. It's mm. just such a great story, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, what a great success and big congratulations to Fleur Ferris and we're so thrilled that you're a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff. So let's move on to our uh, platform building tip this week, shall we? Now, I believe you have a platform building tip for us this week, Valerie. I feel I've, I've just I feel there's a bee in a bonnet somewhere that mm. just needs to come out now. You think? Well, just, you know, maybe. Okay. So, you know, you and I, as journalists, we often have to deal with publicists and uh, and of authors, of, you know, a whole range of people. Mm. And sometimes you get good publicists and proactive publicists and sometimes you don't. Mm. And it's often not your choice because you're assigned a particular publicist, particularly in, you know, the world of publishing. Mm. And and that's that's fine and hopefully you get a really good one. But, you know, maybe yours is having a bad day that week and is not being as proactive as they could be with publicising your book. Mm. And, you know, that's life that happens. Mm. But if that happens, what you need is a good backup and a good plan B. Because if somebody is wanting to put you on a podcast or on national television or do front page of, you know, a, a newspaper or magazine about you, and you happen to have a not so proactive publicist, then if those people are still are really keen to, to still uh, promote you, they need to be able to contact you directly. Mm, they do. And if you don't have your contact information readily and easily available, they won't be able to do that and you'll miss out on a massive opportunity. Mm. So make sure a couple of things. If you're on social media, make sure you're responding to your social media because often a journalist will reach out to you on social media in the hopes that that's one way that they can, they can contact you, which is certainly what I've done in the past. I'm sure you've done it as well. I have. Yep. But if you're not on social media and if not, maybe you should think about being on social media. But <laughs> that's a whole other tip. We'll talk about tip. that another time. <laughs> but if you're not, you need to make sure that you have your contact information, A, readily displayed on your website. Now, you don't have to publish your personal phone number or anything like that, but at least an email address or a way for people to contact you. But importantly, B, make sure you actually receive and respond to those emails. So important. There's some people I know who, um, like I was talking to someone the other day who hadn't checked her contact, um, you know, inbox for two months. I mean, goodness knows what's in there. Two months? Yeah, goodness knows what's in there. Does she have a separate – because sometimes what happens is that um, authors will set up a separate email address for yes. their website so that they're not, you know, getting spammed or whatever. That's right. Which is totally fine. Totally fine. But you have to remember to check it. Yeah, totally. And you have to remember the password and the username <laughs> for it. And if you don't check it regularly, you will not remember. No. And I'm only speaking from experience here. <laughs> you will not remember. And then, you know, those emails will be lost forever. So, um, yeah, it's really – I think you can use – oh, here's the thing I learned too. You can use a um, an address on your email, on your website, that will forward to yes. the email address that you use all the time. Yes, you just set up a forwarding Again, function. Exactly. I speak from experience. Let's do that, <laughs> shall we? Yes, exactly. So mm. very important that you are contactable, and but you actually check that that 
particular method or channel that you are wanting people to contact you because Mm -hmm. there are some opportunities that really could be going straight past you if you happen to you know have a publicist who's having a bad day or bad week and isn't as proactive as they you know might normally be and people will will come to you direct you want people to come to you direct in that instance so that you can grab that opportunity yeah so of course that and many other wonderful platform building tips are in Alison's course called build your author platform which you can and you can find out more on that at writerscenter.com.au slash platform so that brings us almost to the end of our episode this week Al what's happening with you this week uh, so I'm preparing for a big week at Book Week. I'm preparing for a whole yes. lot of um, school talks and author visits. I've got a fantastic literary lunch with the stars organised by the um, North Sydney branch of the CBCA. Oh, I and love it. I know. It's going to be very exciting. So I've, I've got to – Are you a star? Are you, are I'm you a star. star. Oh, my God. No, that's, that's what awesome. my mum said. She goes, I said, oh, I've got to go to this literary lunch with the stars and stuff. She goes, oh, who are the stars? I said, mum, me, I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You, she says. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm off to be a star, apparently, allegedly, and yes. um, that'll be fun. So, yeah, so I'm tweaking workshops and just making sure I've got all my ducks lined up and my bookmarks ready to go and, you know, so yeah. that's me. Pre- preparation. I'm doing some preparation. Brilliant, brilliant. Mm. That sounds good. What about you? What are you doing? What am I doing? I have uh, a nonfiction book that I'm doing a structural edit on and um, so that should be fun. I haven't started it yet, so I'm not sure the level it is at, but that's mm-hmm. sitting on my to-do list. Mm. Yes. Anyway, where is do that we that a pie kind of a job? Oh, oh, didn't even oh. think of that. God, I can't believe it. Really? Sounds like it would be to me. Well, I'll know once I get 20% in. Okay. Because if it's going to be not that hard, I don't know whether I could use banoffee pie, can justify banoffee pie as the reward. But if it's going to be a little bit difficult, then you might be right. I mean, I'm big on rewards. I think rewards are great, definitely. Mm. We should Mm. use rewards like banoffee pie on a regular basis. (laughs) Um, Just not too regular or you'll end up looking like a bumpy pie. I know, I know. So where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Twitter at at Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Instagram and Facebook at alisontaitwriter. Awesome. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and look for me. Mm. So, yes, this brings us to the end now of our episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.